Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 198. With mood and stress expert, Erica First, who was a senior creative executive for over 20 years, and for 10 of those years, led all of the advertising, media, and digital efforts for Ray-Ban. She must have made such an impact with her work that the Ray-Ban Ericas were named after her. In 2015, she suffered a burnout episode and was hospitalized for 10 days with stress-related vision loss. And through this experience, went back to school to study the relationship between stress, the brain and the mind, and founded her company, Moodily.com, as a result. If you've been following our podcast, you'll see clearly why I've asked Erica to join us today for season seven of this podcast, where we're focused on brain health and well-being. Welcome back. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning, understanding and applying the science behind high performance strategies that we can use to improve our productivity in our schools, our sports and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or in the corporate environment. Today's guest, Erica First, loved her job with Ray-Ban. She'll tell her story, explaining it was not like she was working for a terrible boss in a toxic work environment, but quite the opposite, as she loved her work. But when her body reacted to the constant stress it was under, she was forced to make some changes that led her to a whole new path of life. Let's meet Erica and hear how her burnout led her to create Moodily.com and a whole new way of life. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much for meeting me. And I'm guessing, is it Friday night in Italy tonight? Is that where I've reached you? Yes, it's about seven o'clock. It's almost Friday night. This is still working hours here in Italy. So let's start oh, well, game. I'm, I'm so sorry. I've got to apologize ahead of time that I picked this time because then I did the calculations when I found out you were in Italy and I thought, oh, she's going to love me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, if it's available on my calendar to book, it's uh, available. So Welcome and thank you for spending your Friday night with me here. And uh, Erica, there was so much to your story when I saw it that really resonated with me, when I saw the path you took after you had your health scare. But I have to start with a question that's not so obvious, like, you know, tell me where it all started. So I've got to say that most people here in the U.S. push themselves hard work-wise. And, you know, it's like the American dream. There's a price to pay, but you got to work hard. And I'm always watching those close to me looking for a sign that the push is too much. And now we can measure this push with these devices that we can wear and see if we need to rest and recover before we keep pushing. But were there any signs or symptoms that you can think of looking back that you could see a burnout was coming? Um, 
Yes and no. So yes, looking back in hindsight, it's like, oh, okay, now I see what was happening. I could put it, the pieces together. Um, but there was like the first time I'd heard about burnout was after it happened. Um, and, and I didn't learn anything about stress or the damage it does or how it works until I ended up in the post-grad program to study it. So going backwards, like piecing it together. Um, I had, I would have the occasional day. And again, I loved my job, right? You know, it's like, there are people who burn out because they hate their job. They hate the environment they're in. It's a toxic environment. And mine was all, you know, it was toxic in one way. It's Italian workplaces are nutty in a way that they're not nutty anywhere else in the world. So you have to really be able to adapt to being like very Zen and go with the flow, which I am not by nature, but, um, but I would have days where I would get up and be like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, and, and I thought it was me, you know, and there was almost a side that was like, am I depressed? And, and, you know, I'm a fighter and I've always been praised for my resilience. I was like, no, I'm not depressed. I'm fine. Just get up, get a coffee. You'll be fine. Like it's temporary. Um, and now I, what I teach to people is that's like the absolute very first sign. If you're getting out of bed and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. Does your body be like, hello, hey help. <laughs> I need a break. Um, so there was, that was like one sign. And then there were also like little things. Like I was kind of, I was getting clear that I couldn't operate at that level anymore. Um, if there were once upon a time, I used to love to get on a plane and go to LA for a day and come back. Um, but then it started to get to a point where it was like, we need you in London for a meeting tomorrow. And I was like, Oh, like, how am I going to do that? It's like a two hour flight. So things that used to be normal and exciting and fun started to become these enormous weights. And that's, those are two really big clues. Like when what you have to do or what you were performing starts to take on a much different, a much heavier significance, or you can't do it with the same lightness or joy that you were doing it before. And that's one side. So that's the, the stuff that's incoming. And then on the other side where you're just like, I think I might be running on empty. Mm. Um, so, and, and then, you know, the two meet and perfect storm. So. Got it. That, that really resonates and makes me remember sometimes when I was traveling a lot and the trip for me that did it in where I, I was like, I need to make a change with my work. I had to drive to El Paso from Arizona. And back in the beginning, it was like, oh, this is amazing. I get to see the countryside on the way. And and then suddenly that drive, they're, they're fixing the freeway and that eight hour drive turned into a 12 hour drive. Mm -hmm. And I started to exactly what you said. It was like, oh, you're, you're regretting what you've got to do. And yeah. that's when I started to think, well, why can't I just fly? And and I couldn't fly because I had all the stuff that I had to take with me. And so it just was, like you said, a perfect storm of when you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you kind of know. So that's, that's eye-opening to see how to self-assess and recognize, you know, this, I need to make some changes. Yeah. And another thing that actually just kind of came to mind when I was, so I was saying that I used to travel a lot. And one of the reasons I loved to travel, um, which again, I didn't 
piece together until after the fact is that it was the only place where for nine hours, no one could find me. I couldn't get an email. I couldn't get a phone call. Like all I could do was watch TV and have someone ask me if I wanted something to drink, you know? So being on a plane had become my oasis. Um, And when even that like wasn't wasn't enough of a carrot to get me on a plane like that that was really telltale mm-hmm. well this is eye-opening so you land in hospital and it was a very scary situation and i've lost my eyesight before but it was temporary and it was just in one eye and i found out later i was freaking out at the time when i was trying to google with one eye to see what what's going on blindness in one eye and i was calling my eye doctor with the other hand and And I found out it was an ocular migraine just by Googling it. And that's quite common and temporary. It went away. But at the time, it was scary. I was thinking, I got to take the kids to school. I can't see. Can you share like what what you found out? I Googled, actually. I looked it up that, you know, the loss of myelin sheath around your ocular nerve. And I started freaking out with that, all everything that it was saying about that. Can you share what the stress did to your optic nerve to cause the vision loss? Did you Google it and notice what I saw? And then with everything you've learned from this, is that what led you to study neuroscience? Um, so, okay, so how the whole thing happened was funny and I'll put it in quotes because it wasn't funny. Um, I woke up one morning and uh, there was something weird about my right eye and I've said I've suffered from migraines my whole life. So I used to get those ocular migraines um, as well. And I've had always had problems with vision in my right eye. Um, I have terrible vision. So it was acting up and I was like, this is weird, but whatever. Um, and it was just progressively getting worse and worse through the day to the point where I was sitting in a meeting. We were supposed to read this contract in Italy. You have to read the contracts out loud. And so I'm trying to read and I'm doing that like, you know, like 40 year olds, like, and I can't see. And when it's not my turn, I'm doing this with my eyes and trying to figure out what's going on. And so I start Googling in the meeting about, you know, what's going on. And, um, what what triggered me actually was there was a lot of literature around it being potentially a pre-stroke. Um, and I'm the kind of person that like, unless my arm is dangling off and it's very dangerous, I will not go to the doctor. I will not go to the hospital. I'll like try and take care of myself as much as possible. Um, but everyone on my mother's side passed away due to stroke related issues. So when I saw the word stroke, I was like, okay, not funny. Um, and I finished the meeting and I went straight to a private hospital that we have here where you can just kind of show up. And as long as you pay, uh, you can get the diagnostic tests. Um, So they they took me in the optic area and they gave me everything. And after thousands of dollars or thousands of euro worth of tests, they were like, you can't see out of your right eye. And I was like, yes, excellent. We're on the same page. (laughs) That's what I told you when I walked in here. But what is it? And they had no idea. So they checked me. They had to check me into the hospital in the neural department. And I stayed there for 10 days. I did every test imaginable. It was horrifying. Um, 
And they kept coming up clean. There was nothing wrong with me. There's nothing physically wrong with me, which is great because actually they, they were operating under the assumption that it was um, a precursor to multiple sclerosis because optic neuritis is usually the first symptom of, um, of MS. And my roommate in the hospital had said she was my age. And she said, I had the same thing 15 years ago. So I was really freaking out about it at that point. Um, however, the doctor said to me, this is the only time in my life I will ever be happy to hear the sentence. He was like, you're a little too old to have this as a first symptom. <laughs> it usually happens when women are in their thirties, not in their forties. So we think it's separate. Um, and I was like, okay, very welcome. And after that, they, you know, they, they let me go and, um, my, my sight came back over time. Uh, it didn't come back immediately, but there was nothing wrong. They said it's, we think it's stress related and lifestyle related, and it's probably a domino effect. Like there is no, this happened and then this happened, but this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened that ended up causing it. Um, so I had, how I got into neuroscience was sort of a mix of things. Uh, I stumbled one day into um, a speech given by this neuroscientist uh, from, from London. And I was meant to go to the product presentation from Samsung afterwards, but I was like, oh, this could be interesting. Let me listen. And, and it was like a religious experience. I imagine that like, this is when people find God, that's what it felt like. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Mm -hmm answers like yes you're saying what i'm thinking and and you have data to prove the things that i've been like that i've been reading and believing and whatever um so i got into it from that introduction and it was kind of like one of those things where little building blocks lead to the watershed moment um a friend of mine commits suicide. I had like a career reflect, like I was like, I don't want to spend my time and energy um, making billionaires richer anymore. I really want to spend it to trying to help heal people that probably wouldn't seek out healing, the ones who need it the most. Um, people also in like the creative field who are maybe think they're, they're so smart that they can take care of it on their own. And so they don't go out seeking help. Um, and then one day I got on my phone, this ad for the uh, post-grad program in neuroscience and psychology of mental health. And I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about the university, um, but I was like, that, that's what I need to be doing. And I literally, without, literally without Googling anything, I just signed up that day. That's amazing. <laughs> Which was a good thing because if I Googled it, I don't know if I would have signed up. So. <laughs> I hear you. So that's kind of bringing me to my next question, because th it's the same with me. In order to do what I'm doing, I have to have an understanding. And in order to get an understanding, I've got to take a course. And I started watching who's doing certifications in neuroscience. And as I launched this, everyone wanted to know, what's your background? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I've had a couple of Skype conversations with a neuroscience researcher that led me to publish um, neuroscience in, in my book, Level Up but I didn't have any training and I knew I needed it. So I actually just completed a couple, like a, the end of January, a one year mindfulness-based neuro coaching certification program. It was like 200 hours, but it took me two years because I found yeah. it so difficult and intensive. And 
I had been studying with this neuroscience researcher and I was one of his first students. And then he created this coaching program and took like hundreds of people through it. Not everyone passes because at the end, you've got to write this abstract. You got to go on PubMed and then you've got to take something that you are interested in. And mine was educational neuroscience. I submitted my final paper to him in October and he rejected it all the way through like November, December. He kept saying, no, it's problematic. I don't think you really understand yet. And I thought this is the hardest thing I've ever done. It was like, yeah. So I, I know you understand that. I confirm. I had many, many tearful evenings during the course of my postgrad because A, going back to school after 20 years and I am not historically a science person. I've always been in creative fields. I mean, I have tons of respect for it, but I was not. So when we, and part of what we had to study in neuroscience was not just like the fun, cool psychology stuff. It was also the, you know, the nitty gritty and the axons and stuff like that. Um, and so I had many a night while I was studying where I was in tears. I'm like, why did I do this? Right. And when but I pushed through. Yeah. <laughs> and when I'm interviewing people that are writing books in this field, they're actually going and sitting in neuroscience classes with med students to yeah. get the basic understanding because we weren't taught this. And it's not difficult once we get it. It's just taking the mystery out of it. So do you have any thoughts so that a teacher or someone like us without that science background could understand this easier and teach others with more confidence? What, what would you say to them? Well, I have to be honest, this is actually why I chose to do what I wanted to do. Um, because when I started, I had like a triangulation moment when I realized that what I had learned and how it could be helpful to somebody necessitated someone with my skill set, which is communicating to the public, being able to translate difficult concepts into things that they can grasp really quickly. Um, and because since attention span is, you know, at an abysmal low now, you have exactly like 0.1 seconds to grab somebody, um, trying to do it in a way that's also relevant. And, um, and so I am really dedicating so many, like a ton of my time and resources to not just doing my paid for work, but also getting this information out there in, in ways that people can understand um, how to do it. It's very difficult because it's, it's, you know, what makes scientists and academics great is that their brains are not wired for uh, so what they're, they're there to ask the questions and dig deeper. Um, and so sometimes vital information stays in the dark because there's nobody who's like, Hey guys, hold on. You know, you can use that this way. Um, and then sometimes you have the business people who are pretty superficial, who are like, oh, I, there was one really poorly executed study on this. So here's the facts, you know, so it takes a mix of someone who the coming together of the academic world and the communication world with an understanding and respect for each other, which I don't imagine is going to happen anytime soon. But in the meantime, there are people like us who are like, this information is so important to you. I'm going to try and figure out a way 
to speak it coming from someone who's lived it firsthand in words that you can understand. So I think we're all just like on the same mission, waking up to it at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so then you founded moodily.com, your mood ally. I like how you've got that tagline and you go straight to why you created this company with a focus on our moods. And I'm one of those people that wakes up fairly consistently happy in the morning, you know, mornings are my favorite time of the day. Um, and I know how important that morning routine is, but if I miss it, well, watch out, everyone can see it. And so I need that uh, meditation time in the morning um, or else everything goes haywire. What does Moodly offer and how do people implement it into their daily routine? Um, well, so Moodly right now is only available to um, through the companies. Um, I do training, speaking and um, courses, management uh I work with managers one-on-one. -on -one. I will start doing individual sessions with people who think they're nearing burnout. I have had a lot of conversations with executives who are like, that kind of sounds like my experience, but I'm not sure. And so just kind of, you know, listening to what they're doing and, um, or what's going on with them, what they think is happening and, and giving them some guidance on how to put it back on track. And a lot of people, I feel bad saying this, but a lot of people that I've talked to, because I believe in, in very concrete, I've, I've done years of Jungian psychology as a patient and as a student. Um, and I worked with a counselor who's, uh, who actually didn't finish the thing, but was very focused on practical. And I find that the practical is always better than the big fat theory. So everything I try and do is like very much like do this, try this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it tends to actually be more helpful than, than therapy for burnout. Obviously I can't solve parental issues from, from your family of origin, but I can help you manage your stress. Um, so, so what I, and then I have an app that I designed that uses creative materials that I, um, wrote and produced, uh, together with a team of award-winning creatives that I know from my previous life, um, that use sort of scientific techniques and, and guardrails to help you change your mood in real time. Um, where I am available sort of to the public is through, as I said before, the stuff that I put out, I just started my own podcast. Um, I do monthly sessions on LinkedIn on a different topic, uh, that has to do with real life stuff and also your mood and how it affects it on Monday. We're talking about emotional granularity because it's Valentine's day. So we're going to talk about our feelings. Um, uh, yeah, so there's just like lots of different information trying to get into the little pieces of how important people's mood is, because I think we think of it as like something that happens to us that we don't necessarily have control over. Or, you know, I did a survey once where um, I asked employees, like, it, did they think that their mood impacted their work and their performance? And the response was 99% yes, right? <laughs> there was one person who was like, no. And I said, okay, I, if it wasn't anonymous, I wanted to go back and have a conversation. <laughs> um, but that wasn't a possibility. But everyone is aware that mood affects what they're doing. But then I asked them, what's your strategy for changing it? And 80% didn't have one. It was just like, I just wait until it passes, which is the worst because that takes longer. Cause usually you ruminate and you think about it and you're like, 
oh, I should have said this. And what if he did that and blah, 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 blah. And, and so you keep it alive in your body and in your system. Um, and then the other ones were, you know, I'll go drinking or I'll go smoke a cigarette or I'll vent, which is great for you, but terrible for the person who you just passed your mood on to. Um, so my hope is that to be able with uh, some of the tools that I put out there for free, um, that people can learn to A, be aware of the fact that their mood comes before everything. It doesn't matter how many productivity classes you took. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, how the team is organized. If you wake up in a bad mood and you don't know how to get yourself out of it, not only is like your day changed, how you think things are happening to you, but also the quality of your work is negatively impacted. People who are in bad moods make 28% more mistakes, um, even leading to a 7% increase in injury or at the workplace. And they tend to take up uh, at least 10, they lose at least 10% of their day, even anywhere from 10 to 30% of their day, just trying to deal with their emotions. So it's, um, it's one of those skills that when you learn it, it's beneficial for everyone because it improves your well-being, it improves your resilience, it improves the quality of your work, so your employer is happy as well, but it also improves how you deal with other people, how you relate to other people. So it stops also that virality of bad moods spreading from one person to another. Which it totally so, does. Absolutely. A very long-winded answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I completely understand all of it. And, you know, you could say mood, you could say attitude, you could say your mindset. Like it's, do you think they're all kind of similar? It's or a little bit different because mindset, um, you know, it's kind of like country, region, state, city, you know, um, and, and there are also like temporal emotions. Mm. Science has everything, you know, boxed up into to little different pieces. To me, mood is very much the emotional state you're in. It's not like a five second thing. It's like an hour. If you've been in a thing for an hour, that's a mood. Um, a mindset, your mood ends up becoming your mindset, because if you are chronically in a bad mood, you will approach life with a pessimistic outlook. Um, because the brain has this hideous little dynamic where it automates any behavior that we repeat. So if we are repeatedly in a negative mood, our brain makes it easier for us to be in a, a negative mood because it thinks that's what we want to do. I, I've, I like to refer to the brain as like an overzealous intern um, who's doing a lot, but not necessarily what you wanted them to do. Um, so, you know, it's up to us to tell the brain what to do or what not to do. Um, so yeah, so if you continue to be in a bad mood and you continue to have negative thoughts, those become your default mindset. And it becomes very, very difficult to change that uh, over time. This is so important. So I've actually heard you say what shapes our mood is our self-efficacy or our belief in our abilities to face what life throws at us. And on any given day, we have work pressures, health pressures, kid pressures, their health, their school. And then the pandemic magnified all of this. Can mental strength built by your app or other ways help with this self-efficacy so we can better face all of the changes that are thrown our way daily? 
Yes. So the short answer is yes. Um, mood has many influences and influences many things. Self-efficacy is one of the most important because it's what we um, calculate we are able to do, right? And, and part of when we feel stress or when we respond in a way that is fearful to whatever is coming at us, it's because we've done a very quick calculation. The brain calculates at, you know, fractions of a fraction of a second, um, that we, what is coming at us is above and beyond our abilities. Because if I said to you, I need you to teach a five-year-old how to color, that's not going to stress you out. Cause you're like, I can do that. If I say to you, I need you to explain some very difficult topic to a person in another language, you'd be like, well, wait a sec, you know, but, uh, because you've estimated that you're not able to do that. Your abilities don't match what's coming at you. Self-efficacy is built through skills. Um, skills, failing, learning, repeating. Uh, and I'm actually working on a paper that I'm going to submit to a scientific journal where I've actually come up with a model of how mood and mood interventions affects self-efficacy, which then affects your interpersonal relationships, your performance on the job. Basically what, uh, from a literature review that I did, what happens is when you learn skills, uh, mood recognition, mood regulation, uh, and other skills like um, conflict uh, resolution or communication skills, and you are able to put them into practice and you see that they work or that they help you or that there's a benefit, you get very excited because you're like, oh, I can handle that. Or like, this is going to make my life so much better. Um, think of all the applications I can now put this in. So you get excited and then you want to do that more because now you've seen that it's working. This is the development of the self-efficacy. So the next time that same stressor comes at you, you won't feel it as much because now you're like, I got this. So it is 100% linked to skill acquisition. And the beauty is that all of the skills related to emotional intelligence are learnable. So it's kind of like the confidence competence loop. Do you think like can you practice something, you feel like you can do it, even if it's something challenging? Let's say, you know, I was given an assignment and I thought, how am I ever going to do this? And then as I start it, small little steps, I gain more confidence so small little steps to get that efficacy so that I keep going. Absolutely. And, and to also take some of the pressure off because we have this thing that we expect to be great at everything the first time we do it, but because we don't understand how our brain works, right? You have to, in order for things to become automatic skills like walking, talking, running, or whatever, they have to be practiced. And if we go back to thinking of how we were as children, we're not born knowing how to walk. We had to try and stand up and fall, stand up, fall, stand up, fall a little bit later, take the first step. Because 
the neurons need to connect to form synapses, to form networks. And when that network is up and running and solid, that's when you got it. And it passes out of your, the, you know, your active memory and into your implicit memory. Anytime you are doing anything new, it is the same process as learning to walk, learning to ride a bike. You have to struggle through the repetition until you get better and better. But anything you do again and again and again, as I mentioned before, because the brain literally facilitates it for better or for worse. So that goes for drinking as it does going to the gym. Uh, anything you do again, you get better at. And when you see the improvement that gives you the motivation to continue to improve. This is helpful. So I was talking with a good friend of mine from high school the other day, and he was sharing how his life has been since the pandemic, like all of us. And, you know, he's, he's in Toronto and I'm in, in the U S here. And I'd like to hear sometimes what's going on in different countries with the pandemic and see, you know, what's the differences and how people are handling things. And he said, sometimes it would be good just to get a win. And he said, A at the end, cause he's Canadian. They say A after everything. <laughs> so yesterday I had an unusually stressful day. It was tough and it really caught me off track. And I was thinking about what he was saying, you know, sometimes it's good just to have a win. What a constant dead ends do to our self-efficacy. You know, those days where nothing works out right. What's the healthy balance between, you know, we want to push and reach higher places without those days where we, you know, go off track and I don't want to hit burnout or apathy with, with what I'm doing. Right. Um, well, first is perspective, right? Um, one so one day does not a failure make it just makes a bad day um and so the first thing is to give yourself some space to be human we are not robots we are not machines we have we cannot control the universe around us um if technology decides that today everything I try and schedule on Facebook is going to be deleted and then show up as me reposting it six times, four hours later, that's going to happen. Right? And I can get mad and be like, why does this always happen to me? Uh, the universe hates me. Uh, you know, and when we develop emotional self-regulation skills, we actually get better and better at, putting that stuff into perspective, um, knowing that, all right, today was this and it's okay. It's okay because it doesn't mean all of my plans are derailed. It doesn't mean I'm starting from zero. It means I had a crap day and tomorrow is, is another day. So the development of these skills and ironically, actually one of the skills that, that really helps in putting things into perspective is the emotional granularity that I was talking about before, which is the ability to nuance specific emotions. So as opposed to being like saying, I'm angry, uh, what kind of anger, like what's the shade of anger that you're feeling because it changes how your body reacts. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who's like, I'm really nervous about a presentation. And I was like, change your language. Are you nervous about the presentation? Like, are you genuinely nervous? She's like, no, I'm actually really excited because I'm really looking forward to, to being in front of all these people. And I was like, then don't tell your body and your brain that you're nervous. Tell your body that you're excited because that's going to give you a whole different 
field of physiological reactions. Um, so these skills, learning these skills, learning that it's just one day, am I really feeling this? Is the world really against me? Or, okay, you know what? I'm in a really bad mood and I'm processing everything in a negative way. Let me do my shake off therapy. Let me listen to that playlist. Let me just put this bad energy in uh, this place and go do something that's going to put me in a better place and then come back to it. Uh, it's, as I said, it's a fantastic skill. And once you start to, I was um, an incredibly reactionary uh, person, high emotions. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not saying I'm Zen, but instead of like things like this, I'm much more when things go bad, I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna drop this and go do this. <laughs> you know, this it's is a death with practice, right? It's absolutely. Like, you know, and the more tools you're using, it's easier to let those bad days roll off your back for sure. Yes. And you have to find the thing with stress management, mood management is that it's different for everybody. I am not someone who is successful at meditating. Um, so I don't even try. I have my own things to do. I am, you since I'm like very high energy, I do will like shake things off, like listen to a really energetic song, um, try and get myself to laugh or just like toss, toss the energy. Um, so that's how I get rid or I'll bake. That's the other thing. Once I'm baking, I can't think about anything else. Um, so that's, that's my other go-to that's my real meditation and everybody loves it because I can't eat gluten or sugar. So I have to give everything away. <laughs> well, you'd be popular over there for sure. So Indeed. What is, what's your vision for Moodily? Um, so I didn't actually realize it was only for corporations. So I'll make sure that I link everything in the show notes to your podcast and all the work you're doing, but where are you going with, with Moodily? What do you envision? Well, my hope is um, I wanted to start with my community, which is uh, people that I, the tribe that I know best, the professional people who, like me, didn't know that they needed to know this information and may have fallen into a hole that could have been avoided. Um, at the same time, trying to work with younger generations to prevent. And so, my hope is that I'll get enough sort of. Um, uh, entry into corporations that I can start bringing it to the consumer, um, our final consumer and doing something that's, um, direct, but also with my courses, also with, um, with the app, I tried to go the other way. Like originally I was like, let's do the app and see where that goes. But it had become a whole different experience of, VCs and cap sheets. And, and I was so far from where, like, I just wanted, I did this because I wanted to make an impact. And all I was doing was talking about money and users. And I said, I would rather put this on the back burner right now and just use it as a side tool to the people that come in, you know, that, that are, take my classes. Um, but I need to get out there and and speak and talk and, and get that. Like, to me, that's, that's what keeps me waking up smiling every morning. Well, the videos are beautiful. I, I had a chance to go look on your resource section and they are beautiful and they did help 
um, when I was I was at my desk and I was going through them and I used quite a few tools and and it definitely did make me happier for sure it shifted my mood it was noticeable immediately oh awesome yeah it was beautifully made but like you said you came from from that that background and then you added the science to it and I can see the science to it because I'm using other apps that are science-based that have very similar you know affirmations that come in but it, yours is visual so it's it adds a yeah. lot of dimension than just words well it was um it was the my aha moment when i was studying in um my in my postgrad where i was reading about stress and and emotions and they you know obviously to test people's emotions they can't do it in real life because you'd have to have like a team of scientists sitting in the corner of your house all day waiting for you to get into a specific mood um so they bring people into a clinical setting they would do these mood inductions they're called mood inductions um they would put people into very specific moods they would run a bunch of tests and then they would put them back into a neutral mood and i was thinking well if you can do that in a clinical setting why can't you do it in real life because they were seeing numbers where people's cortisol levels dropped serotonin levels increased um and so I went digging into what these mood inductions were. And like many of the things in science, they have fancy names for really easy things. And it was creative materials. And I was like, oh, that's what I do for a living. I can make creative materials. So I actually found a scientist here in Milan who um, works specifically in discrete emotions. She's like one of the top researchers in discrete emotions. And I took my hypothesis to her and I said, I have a theory that I I can create using what we know about the mind and what works and certain words and certain facial reactions, you know, smile mimicry and stuff like that, um, that I can make videos that will shift people's mood in real time, the way mood inductions work in a clinical setting. Am I crazy? And she laughed at me, but she laughed because she said, She's like, you're absolutely right. The science is 100% solid. She's like, I can't believe nobody's ever thought of it but before. <laughs> I was like, well. <laughs> yeah, I loved but it. This, I loved it for sure. But this is what I said, you know, that the scientists aren't, it's not their job to take the research and then do something with it. It's their job to go deeper into the question. So I was, I, I was for, when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm one of the few people on the planet who can actually make this happen because I know the science and I know how to make the creative work. So that's where the whole thing started. That's amazing to me. That's what, that's what, when I saw you and not just for the fact that I've probably worn Erica Ray-Bans in the past, I've definitely <laughs> probably left them somewhere, go through sunglasses in Arizona like crazy. But um, when I saw what you had created with the neuroscience, it's it's amazing what you've done. So I just hope. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I hope we can help you get get it out there. And even thinking about partnerships, have you thought about people you'd like to partner with? Have, have you ever thought where else, who, who else you could partner with? Maybe other apps. I'm just curious. Um, you know, I would uh, love. I think that what I'm doing. Uh, could easily be absorbed into one of the other um, people who already have large audiences because it's not quite what they're doing. They're doing like meditation or sleep apps. Like they have very focused things um, where my difficulty, I think, so I actually think it would be 
quite easy to build into a calm or a headspace. Um, the only issue I would say there is that since I come from advertising um, and communications, I know that how you say things sometimes are more important than what you are saying. And um, there's a still a very large chunk of the population that is polarized by the words meditation uh, or mindfulness. And so um, why I also focused on mood or wrapped it up in that sense was to be approachable and welcoming to people who normally are turned off by what's available to them already on the market. Um, and one of my very small satisfactions, but gives me great satisfaction is that I get a lot of comments from men that, that are like, I didn't think I was going to like it. I, and I never thought it would work, but it works. And they're shocked and excited at the same time because they don't, you know, they, they don't want to admit that they need help, but then they're happy, you know, if they can have it and it doesn't like sound woo woo and weird, then, then they're excited about it. So that was one of the reasons why I sort of built it that way was to be approachable to a more corporate uh, population. Definitely. I understand that because I tried to introduce tapping into the workplace when and yeah it, it did not <laughs> too go much so well but now i've watched the transition now it's used very um readily in our schools and by a yeah. lot of the, the superintendents are using it for trauma in in the classroom and so it's just a transition with everything if there's different ways to say things but i completely i, I get that. yeah and it's generational also, because once you get to, there was actually a, a graph I saw that, uh, you know, your divergent thinking just gets lower and lower every year. And everything that happens to you up until 35 is your knowledge. Anything that new that you learn from 35 on is wrong. <laughs> so. Interesting. So is there anything that's important that we have not covered today? Did I miss anything with my questions for you? I don't think so. And actually, I would just like to say to your listeners that rarely is a podcast host so well prepared. Like you did so much research. I was so impressed and, and honored. Um, <laughs> so you, very, very thorough. You know why? Because I had a rough day and I needed your your content. It's like, what am I going to do to switch this? I'm going to write her questions and I'm going to watch everything she's done to switch my mood because it was it was a rough day yesterday and it really helped to to switch it up and and it made me just think sometimes things don't go the way that you want. And no matter if you've done your meditation, you've done your exercise, something gets thrown at you that's going to turn you off track. What are you going to do? And, yeah. and this is this is what you do. In real time, you can change your mood. Yes. Love it. So if anyone wants to... Oh, did you have something else? Did no, I was trying to remember the statistic, but uh, which I think it's 76% of the people who use the app feel at least 25 to 30% better after just one video. Yeah. Yeah, I can say that for sure. So if anyone wants to learn more about you, is the best place moodily.com? Yes, that's my home base. Or they can come find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Happy to always have new friends. 
Perfect. I'll put everything in the show notes for people to contact you. And I want to thank you so much. It's timely. It's important. And it really did help me yesterday to switch my mode and get back on track. So thanks for being on the podcast and sharing this beautiful app and training that you've created. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 